You're listening to Shrink the Virus, a weekly podcast that explores the psychology of everyday life during the pandemic, hosted by two psychiatrists, Steve Allen and Rob Seltzer. Shrink the Virus is brought to you by Melbourne independent community media organisation, Triple R. Check out the Shrink the Virus podcast page on the Triple R website and on Facebook. And don't forget, you can financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber at any time. More details at rrr.org.au. Hi, and welcome to Shrink the Virus with myself, Rob Seltzer, and Steve Ellen. <laughs> the highlight of my week is deciding whether to say my name and how to say it. It's a pretty quiet week in lockdown, you know. That was the how robotic you, version. I'm really well, man. I'm actually doing surprisingly well. Um, in fact, I was just saying to a friend of mine, I think I'm the fittest I've ever been because I've got all this oh. extra time where I'm not, you know, schlepping the kids off to here, there and everywhere. And so I'm making use of our garage, which has turned into Rob's gym and kids gym as well. So I'm feeling pretty fit. Hey, That's we should amazing. say what, we should yeah, say what date is today. It's oh, the yeah. 22nd of August at 1.46 p.m. Saturday, um, I was going to say morning, but it feels like morning because I'm still in my pajamas. Saturday, just after lunch. Just after lunch, because things change very quickly. And uh, was it three weeks ago when we said we gave the latest update and then about an hour later, there was a stage four lockdown. Hey, man, what have you been doing? Yeah, bugger all. You know, I'm sort of in lockdown mode now. You know, what are we, week three, week four yeah, of the severe three. lockdown? I don't yeah. know. Um, I'm in lockdown mode. I'm really uh, quite enjoying the work from home. I think I mentioned a while back, we had a massively busy mm. few weeks at uh, my work. I work at Peter Mac. We got a new computer system in for the whole precinct and we've been preparing for it for about a year and it's about a month transition sort of period in the first two weeks have passed. So I've, I was flat out, but, and that took all my focus. That's been my full focus for a while, but uh, I'm sort of, you know, things are settling down a little bit and it's, it's nice. I'm, I'm enjoying the lockdown. I'm sort of in, in the groove. Do you know, if you were 100% in lockdown mode, you do the, the Brett Sutton and grow a beard. Well, my hair is out. To, you know, when you commented about how fit you are, you know, I'm so fat at the moment and my <laughs> hair is so long because I was, I was already a week or two over getting my usual sort of every two month haircut when this one came about and the hairdressers closed down. And I actually got so worried about my weight this week that about four or five days ago, I restarted my fitness pal. It's, a, it's a, basically a calorie counting app. Now, I feel a bit guilty saying that because I know nutritionists say that, you know, restrictive diets are not the... Mm-hmm correct approach but you know things have just got out of hand i'm about six kilos over so i said okay you know okay time to time to pull back a little bit i can't tell i can't tell tell hey well in about a month two months time though (laughs) i'll get on and you'll go oh my god you look so svelte svelte oh i love that word it's very omnimetopic hey i've been reading about vaccines now now you know that i've got an interest in vaccines because i you know so much is, is riding on it and there's was 160 different companies around the world producing vaccines or, or potential Trialing, vaccines. Yep. Um, candidate yeah, I, vaccines, they call them. Candidate 160 vaccine. candidate vaccines. Six are in stage three trials, which means they're being um, trialled on thousands of, of uh, people. And we were sitting around the, the table last night chatting about this. With you know, I was talking with my kids, and we are talking about antibody responses. So the whole idea of a vaccine is that you give a little bit of what looks to be kind of like the virus that you're trying to um, prevent to your, to the body in the vaccine. And that stimulates an antibody against said virus. And also some of the T cells as well get stimulated so that when it sees the virus, it comes and goes, Rawr! and eats it up. And you, know, 
You don't actually get the disease. That's the whole idea. Or, or, or you, you get, get attenuated. Yes. Yeah, attenuated. Very important disease. point that because people constantly think vaccines prevent, not necessarily. Yeah, it may attenuate. Whole so, lot of ways they work. But yeah. then I was just reading about today in the Guardian magazine that we, what about? Remember, you might remember, Steve. There's a a fairly um, nasty disease called dengue fever, and one of the things, which is also a viral disease, and one of the things about dengue is the second time you get it it's actually worse than the first time you get it because of your antibody response from the first time. And the worry was, the worry or concern, shouldn't say it's a worry, but a concern when you're producing a vaccine is that you don't just get an antibody response which makes getting uh, exposed to the, the virus down the track worse a la dengue fever. And that's one of the sort of issues that are floating around in the producers, the manufacturers of these vi- of these. Um, of these vaccines. So just because you get an antibody response, fantastic. But uh, 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 you've got to watch out, you know, how safe is it? And this was brought up in reference to the, um, was it Sputnik V, <laughs> the, uh, the, the Russian vaccine, is we've seen no data about it. And, you know, how safe is it? And what sort of antibody response does it have? So you've got to be careful and, and rigorous when you're looking at all these, uh, these vaccine responses. Yeah, it's interesting. I've heard a few experts in pod. You know, sometimes I listen to really expert podcasters. I.e., not ours. ours. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, I've been listening to a few, and some of the vaccine experts I've had, you know, have been really trying to wind back a lot of the expectations because, you know, the media expectation and, you know, hearing about Russia and a lot of our um, politicians are all saying, you know, that stuff like, well, we've entered a deal with the Oxford vaccine um, Mm. manufacturers and, you know, we'll be able to produce it ASAP. So there's been this sense around that a vaccine's coming soon. But all of the experts are sort of, everyone I listen to sort of goes, I, I, I don't want to create, um, I don't want to create more disappointment. But even if we get a vaccine, we often don't know how beneficial it is for about a year, mm. sometimes two years. Mm. We've got to travel cautiously. You can't just start giving it to everyone. You might make some people sick. It mm. might have, et cetera, et cetera. You've got to actually do it properly. Mm. Otherwise, you know, the Cure could be worse than the disease, the classic. Mm. And mm. so, um, yeah, so... Uh, Temporary expectations I, is what and, you're saying? Yeah, and I think that brings us on. In fact, look, before, because that's a good segue to another topic, which is how uh, the, the lockdown topic. But before we do, I just thought we should actually tell people who our guest is today too. Oh, yeah. we Man, yeah. have we got an amazing... What a beautiful, beautiful accent does he have. Yeah, because as you probably know, we normally do the interview before we do the introduction. Podcast magic being what it is, mm. we then put the in, the introduction before the interview. But we've already interviewed Dr. Killian Ash, who's a consultant psychiatrist at uh, one of the big hospitals in Melbourne, Royal Melbourne, works in inpatients, mm. and he's also uh, has a um, private, private practice. Yeah. And wouldn't you know it, I've closed the page that has the name of his private practice. I'm going to bring it up while... But he, but he does talk very articulately about the stresses and strains of COVID and how that impacts upon systems and also staff and patients as well. Found yes, it? He certainly, he <laughs> say one more sentence. He certainly does. He certainly does. And we, as a matter of fact, he also works in private practice at Clarity Healthcare in Brunswick. Yeah, so he's, a, um, you know, mm. so he's, he's relatively recently qualified. The reason we got him, just FYI, the reason we got him is we um, saw him on Q&A, mm. the ABC show on, you know, uh, at about whatever it is, 9.30 on Monday nights. And he spoke so beautifully on that and was so succinct and thoughtful and considered um, that uh, we thought, oh, we've got to get him on the podcast. 
podcast. We, and he's also been on the drum this week too. He's such a he, he's a really thoughtful guy. We thought we needed him interview. to balance out us, basically. Yeah, and, he, and, he, and he does a fair <laughs> he job. Does a very, he, yeah, he's very, very good. Um, but, so, Steve, yeah, you're going to talk. Go. You talk about lockdown and the roll-on effects. Yes. So given that we're looking at the vaccine might be a lot longer than people think, and even when it does come in, we're probably looking at a year at least, a year at least from the time we start rolling it out till we've got enough people vaccinated that we can really go about our daily lives without worrying about COVID too much. So it got, you know, a lot of us thinking about, well, how much, you know, how much longer can we tolerate lockdown and, you know, how much lockdown should we have? Because there's been a number of people over the course of the last few months saying this lockdown's too much and that the and again, I'm going to use that hackneyed phrase, the cure could be worse than the disease because if we lock people down, we'll have increased mental illness, family violence, um, economic uh, destruction, long-term poverty, all sorts of, you know, so we might actually make people sicker than the other way around. Now, most people who bring this point up have been banged on the head pretty quick so far because, you know, the, the issue has always been, um, what, you want to let people die, da 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 and it's created quite a often... Often they've been shouted down a bit, but yeah. this week the vice chancellor of Melbourne University, which is the top job, that's the that's the number one job. Mm. Um, I haven't got his name in front of me, Professor. <laughs> I that's what you were googling before. Duncan Maskell. I've got it on my <laughs> phone. Right. Professor Duncan Maskell wrote, a, you know, came out and it was in all the newspapers. He wrote a letter basically mm. saying we've got to be careful. We've got to think this mm. through very carefully. Mm. We can't just automatically assume that um, locking down and preventing the spread of COVID is doesn't have complications and risks in and of itself, and we've got to weigh it up. Now, yeah, what are your thoughts, Roberto? Yeah, uh, we, we briefly touched on this the previous week, Steve, that if you look at health, health um, is a, a lot of things. It's biological, like, you know, do you have the illness or not, and how much is it affecting you biologically? It's psychological and it's social. There are, there are these three pillars of what health is. And of course, of course, of course, of course, you want to minimise the amount of biological effect because every, a lot of things stem from that. But the countervailing view is that psychological and social health uh, is also impacted upon by lockdown, even, well, especially if you don't have the the virus. So there are these competing forces and yet the response has to be nuanced. I mean, what you're talking about, I suspect, in fact, I know, is the psychological effects of prolonged lockdown, of isolation, um, of anxiety and a whole lot of uh, uh, mental illness that can be precipitated by it. And then, as you were saying, there may be generational uh, debt to pay back the uh, the economic cost of of the lockdown. So we have to look at that as well. And more than that, I, you know, I've been saying for a few months now that I'm a little bit worried about the lockdown. I've I feel a bit, I've always felt a bit uncomfortable about it. I agree that we need to slow the spread of the virus. Absolutely. But let me tell you, it's not just the psychological and the other mental health effects I've been worried about. I'm worried, obviously, about the economic effects. Now, I know a lot of people say you don't need to, and the economists we had on this show said the effects are relatively, you know, not as big as people think. I'm also worried about the, um, what I hate this term, but the geopolitical effects. This virus is creating untold, and a lot of the, you know, the lockdown's part of that because a lot of the ways societies are closing each other off is we're isolating ourselves from each other and um, we're leading to lots of racism and hatred and, mm. inter and you know, countries abusing each other and mm. criticising each other most scarily USA and China. So mm. I think there's lots of other factors. Now, I'm not obviously... 
you know, all I'm saying is I'm a little bit anxious. And one of the things that worried me particularly in the first few months is that you couldn't have this debate. Every time I tried to raise anything about, you know, what are the ill effects of the lockdown, people would say, what, do you want to let people die, do you? Do you want old people to die? Do you mm. want vulnerable people to die? No, 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 no. I want to balance. And my understanding of the lockdown for the first couple of months in January, February, March, when we were talking about it, was it was to flatten the curve. It mm. wasn't eradication. It was to slow the spread of the virus enough that, so that the hospitals could cope, that we had a chance to develop some treatments, which we've got, and so we could get our head around it, get enough PPE in. But, mm. you know, the idea that we have to eradicate, it scares me a little, because if we stay in lockdown mode for a very long time, I'm really worried that there'll be all sorts of unintended consequences mm. that outweigh the effects of uh, this respiratory illness. Well, I'm not sure that, I mean, has, a, has any country eradicated the virus? I mean, you, we thought New Zealand had, you know, a hundred days virus free and then a, a cluster popped up. So I think any country that thinks they've eradicated it has just been lucky, honestly, mm. you know, because it's, it's a virus. It's, mm. it's like a bushfire, you know, the little embers float everywhere and spot fires come up everywhere. And we're, you know, I, I mm. don't think it's possible. Mm. Well, anyway, I don't know. I'm not an infectious disease expert. All I say is I want to be able to have the debate without yeah. people getting yeah. abused. The, yeah. You know, the, the financial, the economist on Q&A about three or four weeks ago who argued against the lockdown, you know, oh, she mm. got hammered in the media. Mm. That's what worries me. We have to be able to have an intellectually honest and fair debate, express our opinions, and we'll still follow the rules. The government will weigh up all the pros and cons and go, they're the rules, and people like you and I will say, I'm, I'm, I'm following the team. Oh, gee, I really wish I could remember yesterday I was teaching some medical students, and one of them brought up a quote from somebody. It might have been Hippocrates or somebody who said, you know, one of the, the I want to be able to uh, disagree with you and hold different ideas and still be friends. It's kind of that you know where yeah, you can that have a disagreement principle. without being polarized yep. into camps. Yeah. Hey, man. But that's, well, it's not I disagree with what you say, but I defend to death your right to say it. No, it's different. Isn't no, it's it? yeah. different. It's like yeah, you know we can agree uh, amicably. We don't yes. have to polarize and get yes. angry and beat each over the head with clubs and you know and verbal abuse and so forth. Hey, we sh we are going to talk at the end of the show after our interview with Killian about Radiothon, but I just thought we might mark it now. So Triple R, the wonderful best radio station in the universe that sponsors us on Shrink the Virus, has a Radiothon. This is because that's how they survive. That's how we survive, by getting sponsorship and by getting asking subscribers to subscribe <laughs> to Triple R and with that the, the the station can keep functioning. I don't think Triple R doesn't receive, receive any f government funding does it Steve? No, no government funding. It normally gets about half of its funding from sponsorship announcements, yep. you know, which are all, you know as you'll, if you listen to Triple R you'll know they're all sort of ethically sound. It's not all the usual bullshit ads you see on other places that's why we call them <laughs> sponsorship announcements because, you know, they're all good local community sort of things. Um, so they get words, half, Steve. But the um, the uh, the sponsorship at the start of COVID uh, fell by about 95%. Because a lot of it was for gigs and stuff, which are, aren't going on at the moment. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, so you know, this is probably the most important year ever to um, dig into your wallet. And, and as Rob says, we'll talk about it at the end, but you can subscribe, you can donate. It's all through the website this year, rrr.org.au. Yep. Um, and uh, I did it this morning. I bought mine up to date this morning, and I wanted to just test that mm. it worked nice and smoothly. It's beautiful, and donations are really important one this year too, because of course, if you donate, you um, get you can get a tax deduction. Tax deduction. So that, that's some, on top of the subscription. Yeah, so, so you can do, donate, yeah. or you might choose to just donate this yeah. year instead of subscribing. Um, anyway, we'll talk more about that after the show and tell you some of the great prizes and stuff. But uh, you know, we love Triple R, and the lifeblood of Triple R is subscriptions and donations. So. Uh, People, keep it in mind. But on that note, 
we will now bring in Dr. Killian Ash, a psychiatrist in private practice in Brunswick and also in public practice in one of the major hospitals who's got his finger on the pulse. Let's say, let's bring him in now. Independent Melbourne Radio 3RRR. And joining us now on Shrink the Virus is Dr. Killian Ash. G'day, Killian. G'day, indeed. Hello, how are you? G'day, Killian. Very, very good. It's an unusual name, Killian. Not one you hear a lot. In fact, I almost stuttered over it as I said it. It's, it's obviously Irish, given your accent. Yes, you did well. You got it. It's the type of thing in Ireland everybody would know a Killian. In Australia, not so much. At least it has the benefit of being phonetic, which goes a long way here. Oh, yeah, those Irish like Sinead names. Or something. Yeah, and yeah. Neve. Neve yeah. is always one that gets me. Spelt something like, you know, NIA. I always think of it as the National Institute of Mental Health, but it's Neve. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Killian, let's get the ball rolling. We invited you on. Yeah. Uh, we've already introduced you just a few seconds ago, but we invited you on because you're a psychiatrist working in the inpatient unit at um, one of the big major hospitals, and you're also in mm. private practice um Indeed. i'm always fascinated when i hear people with st with strong accents what's your pathway to being to your current role now what brought you to uh melbourne and what uh, turned you into a psychiatrist at uh, royal melbourne well look thanks for having me along and yeah it's always interesting to reflect even for oneself isn't it i i grew up in the west of ireland not from a medical family everybody was a teacher i announced in my early teens i was going to be a doctor and a psychiatrist and i honestly am an entirely sure why but I stuck to stuck to that and did uni in Dublin not sure if I went to much psychiatry in med school and certainly if I did I'd absolutely no idea what they were doing or what was going on um, but continue to kind of have an interest in people and the whole psychology of, of medical practice and it's a real rite of passage for medical new graduates after intern year to bail over to Australia in huge numbers to escape our <laughs> awful working conditions. And it was a fantastic experience to go to Perth with loads of people. And in fact, after traveling and attempting to settle back in Ireland, I found I couldn't. I'd been spoiled by the experience of working in Australia. I guess Australians don't realize how good they have us. But we coming from overseas mm -hmm. appreciate all the, the good that comes with living and working here. So moved to Melbourne seven years ago, um, intent on pursuing psychiatry, and thankfully got my place at uh, Royal Melbourne, and by and large have been there on and off ever since. So I completed specialist training last this year, in fact, and uh, was lucky enough to get a job at the Alma Mater at the training ground. And private practice then just came as an opportunity a few months later to, I guess, meet a whole other raft of patients that uh, I think there's a real benefit to broadening mm. one's scope of practice. Mm. Um, you know, Steve, I, I've, you know, I've known you for what, 40 years and I still don't know the reason why you did psychiatry. Why did you do psychiatry, Steve? Really, you, know, know. Us, you know, yeah. well, I, I've never quite figured out why I did it too, but I grew up in a family. My dad was an actor. And one of the things that they was talked about constantly was human nature. So from a young age, you know, I, I remember listening to people sitting around, you know, actors sitting around talking about, you know, does human nature change? How does one, does, you know, act anxiety or whatever? So there was a lot of talk about it. So I was always interested too. And at school, you know, I wanted to do psychiatry and I don't quite know why. 
although I waxed and waned because, you know, everything I did. And, and I was the same in medical school. In med school, I was always planning on doing psychiatry, but I didn't pay much attention to psychiatry on account of the fact that I was outrageously lazy. I, you know, failed so many exams and repeated a year, just didn't turn up, thought it was too much fun. And my attitude to psychiatry was, well, I'm going to be a psychiatrist. Why would I waste quality relaxing time, drinking time, partying time at university. So I didn't even turn up to my psych rotations virtually because I knew I was going to study it in the long run. So, you know, why waste my time studying it now? And, but yeah, so I had that same experience, but yeah, I don't really know. What about you, Roberto? I was going to say sage advice to any medical students listening. (laughs) If you're going to study it later, why study it now? Anything more than 51 is a waste is basically. (laughs) We used to to say every mark over 50 is a mark that could have been spent at the pub. Um, why did I, I did I did it because I like talking to people and I love hearing stories. I just I really mm. just like. I mean, you know, you and I when we're at parties, we just love talking to people to hear their stories, to hear what their experiences are. And some people are drawn to that narrative. It's, you know, why we and of course we we have the privilege of uh, time. You know, we're all very busy, and I certainly find the days are frantic. But part of the day, the essential part of the day, is carving out the time to listen to people and. I guess through culture and pressures, physicians, surgeons, GPs, they're not afforded so much time to listen to people's stories. And it's a pity. It is just a, mm. you know, it's still after 30 odd years in the trade, I still, you know, at the end of each week, sometimes just sit back and think, you know, I can't believe that someone told me all of that. Mm. And, uh, you know, the stuff you get told, of course, because of the nature of it, it's just unbelievable. And it's such an interesting you know, part of society. Like this week, you know, I had my first few patients where I got to ask them a lot about what's it like to have COVID. They had COVID. And, uh, you know, and getting to hear that, you know, when it's just, it's an amazing... It's um, an amazing privilege, isn't it? I mean, I say that seriously. Yeah, yeah, I hate the word privilege, but Yeah, I don't like it it either, but it's... It is, is. I I totally get what you mean. You just sit there (laughs) thinking, because you're there to do a job, Yeah. you know, and the person doesn't want to be thinking, oh, that person's getting privileged to hear my story. You know, they're wanting to know that you've got your head tuned into the game and you're thinking about psychological issues and you're trying Mm. to tune into their emotional state and all that sort of stuff. But anyway, hey, so obviously we wanted to speak to you because we'd seen you on TV and we know you're a great talker and we also... With you know, interested to have someone who's you know got a fresher outlook on the whole pr- approach to mental health than we have. So you know, why don't we start off with the most obvious? What's been the impact of COVID on the you know your work, the patients you're seeing in particular? Well, I think the patients is a good starting point because everybody's affected by COVID, mm. whether they have it or whether they don't. And the vast majority of people I see don't have it. Um, patient-wise, in public, as you both well know, the system is so strained. There's so much demand for really hyper-acute services. And within those hyper-acute services, in the in the desperately sought-after beds in our psychiatric units, including particularly at Royal Melbourne at this time, we've got people who are already very restricted in their um, freedom due to the need to treat them under the Mental Health Act. And on top of that, they have to get swabs, they can't go on leave, they can't have visitors. We're all wearing masks and visors and PPE. It must be terrifying. It must be so disconcerting. And in turn, things are quite tense. You know, it is a tense environment. It's an anxious environment. There's been an increase in occupational violence. In the more open psychiatric mm-hmm. units, things are <clears throat> things are busy. I mean, interestingly, with the with the particularly psychiatrically unwell, there's so much incorporation of of the COVID and the pandemic into their delusional and hallucinatory experience. And while, of course academically it's it's really interesting it's, it's definitely frightening for them as if the world wasn't terrifying enough so it's really important i guess to be mindful of that 
interestingly, in, you know, in, in private and, and in the more open world where we're conversing with people around their stresses and fears, there's the, there's the worry of getting coronavirus, particularly since so many of our people are subject to so much systemic oppression anyway and are vulnerable in the community to begin with. And people whose, you know, OCD has flared up, whose trauma has flared up, whose anxiety has flared up, obviously. This is very real. And so as we spoke about the whole population is affected, but we always have to pay, I think, mind to just how much this affects people with mental illnesses already. Yeah, it's that, it's that flame of uncertainty really puts all symptoms on the boil, doesn't it? It's, mm. it, it really has a sort of a pan effect. Um, you talked about some of the ways that the fear and uncertainty was manifesting. Um, you talked about irritability on the ward. Have you, have you noticed anywhere else or in, in any other way systemically or with patients? Well, I think there's a, there's a pervasive anxiety, isn't yeah. there? And the hospital itself is quite a tense place. There is so much more restriction that it does lend itself to challenging um, I suppose our usual modes of communication. I mean, I, we forget how much we rely on nonverbal communication, on the wry twist of one's mouth to soften the, you know, difficult news mm. delivered. These mm. kind of things matter. And I think we have to work so hard expressively to, I guess, get an empathic point across to somebody. You know, I was saying this, I said this a few weeks ago, Robin, you hadn't noticed it at this point, and I wonder if you've changed your mind now, that I've noticed also, um, because we're all wearing masks in the community, that people are walking around like robots, a lot of the usual smiling and stuff like that, because it, you have to put in so much effort to smile, you virtually have to raise your eyebrows and, you know, sh wiggle your head a little bit so that people notice. Everyone's walking around a little bit like robots, not looking at each other, um, and I've noticed it in the clinical settings too you just have to work so hard to express your emotions what do you think have, have either of you noticed that well paranoia pervades mm. i think people are suspicious you know the person beside you in the store could be the, the harbinger one of my great mentors at royal melbourne pointed out the need for us to model the big smile within the mask you know give people uh, a greeting as you walk by we, we forget to do it. I think we're all withdrawn within ourselves as well. It makes a massive difference. And you can see, I say hello to the old ladies on the street as I'm walking by, give them a wave. They're a bit disarmed. But of course, it means something to people. Mm. It absolutely does. The other thing I've noticed too is that people who are acquaintances don't recognize me and I don't recognize them. And just the other day, mm. I was walking past one of my neighbors and we got about 20 steps past each other. And then we both turned around and said, oh, g'day, because... You know, that's what masks do. They mask you. And masks have never, mm. I don't think, they always have a bit of a negative connotation, don't they? A mask. And um, as you say, most of our communication is nonverbal. And to cover that up, especially for people that are toward people who are anxious or paranoid, it's just going to make things that, 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 that much worse too. The Royal Commission's obviously um, been going and we've had all this sort of uh, information coming out over the last six months in particular about how services aren't coping very well and are totally under pressure, both, you know, all the mental health services. And there's all sorts of plans, obviously, to improve that. And then along comes COVID, which 
you know, I don't, most services have lost a lot of staff. And in particular, you know, because every time someone gets a sniffle, they have to get a test and be isolated. And so most services are running on around about 10, 20% absenteeism at the moment. You know, what's your impression of how services are holding up in uh, mental health in Melbourne? As you both know, people do phenomenal work. And I mean that sincerely. There's there's an ever-present demand for both the hyper-acute end of the service, particularly when people are extremely mentally ill and drug-affected. But there'll always be a demand for the moderate part of the service where people anxious, depressed, traumatised come. The services are fractured. I mean, you two know a lot better than I do how complex it is to deliver mental health care. And the services that have evolved are therefore quite complex. And the challenges between federal and state are evidence you know they, they fund kind of in different ways different parts of the thing and the middle missing middle expression was coined a few years ago to i guess describe those who are losing out they're not quite fitting into the service and they're often people with significant mental health needs the staff i think we have to remember are also you almost unique to this situation all as affected by the major stressor as everybody they're helping. Often the people that we're seeing are subject to great stresses, The many of us aren't, but all the mental health workers are also dealing with all of this stress while helping people at least as vulnerable. So that, that adds an interesting dimension to it, and I think it plays out in some of the transferential stuff as well. You know, it's funny. Um, I keep trying to imagine, you know, because that issue of we're all going through such a stressful time, I've found that so much you know i've never had so many calls from staff you know under stress and helping them get in contact with psychologists and various other people like that and i keep trying to you know and it's a you know it's a little bit different for us too i find because we're still working you know so i still get to go to work every day and get to do all that stuff and and i keep trying to imagine you know what what's this a historical equivalent. So I wonder, you know, so I was asking my dad actually a lot, what was it like, you know, what are the reports of the depression? What was it like during World War II when, you know, my grandfather was in the war, for example, what did, did it feel as stressful? Was it the same thing? Did you, you know, what was the feel? And he talked a lot about what polio. He said, you know, when he was young, there was an ever present fear that kids would have polio and every street had one or two kids who had some degree of polio and, you know, they'd been whizzed off and, you know, one of his brothers got whizzed off to nine months but you know for our gen well you're obviously younger but for even rob and i you know we've never had anything like this and it's just this weird feeling of going through this protracted we think who knows we're up to about seven or eight months already probably be 18 this protracted state of the whole world it is just i still can't quite get my head around it i wake up every day sort of not knowing how to feel i know what i'm feeling but i don't know how to feel that something's up and something's different but i think you know what it's drawn into sharp relief if, if i can encapsulate some of the feelings for me it's the fragility of all the structures that we have in the world how fragile mm. everything is and there are very tenuous strings that are linking our things together the economy healthcare systems international borders all those things all these constructs that we've spent years and years building decades building a lot of them have just in some countries have come crumbling down and internationally you see how 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 precious and how tenuous those links are exactly and as you say these are very friable constructs mm. which i guess on a on a global level we've convinced ourselves were infallible at the same time I mean, people are remarkably resilient 
you know, there's, there's the word again, it's the word that gets used a lot and sometimes overused, but I think it's an important one. People draw from strengths they didn't know they had. In an Australian context, and without generalizing, there's parts of the population, you know, particularly First Nations people who would have known trauma, who would have known a, a adversity at every turn. Um, some of the population, particularly the younger ones, you know, wouldn't necessarily have met kind of systemic societal challenges such as depression, such as wars. And yes, people are drawing on, uh, you know, a, a never before summoned strength at the same time. While it's important to normalize that everyone's going through things, people's responses are different and that's okay. I think while, while it's important to acknowledge that people are having understandable feelings and stresses, there has been a bit of derisory content around people's inability maybe to cope so well. Backgrounds are different. People are traumatized. People have come through a lot of different stuff for which this can be very triggering. Mm. What do you make of the, you know, the general, there's a lot of people in Australia, you know, there's a real culture of really laughing at psychology. You know, the average Aussie bloke, you know, is the stereotype, but I'm sure it's the same for everyone. You know, they don't really, they've never really had to reach out for help for anything of a psychological nature. What are you seeing in sort of friends, families, you know, people who normally wouldn't fit into that rubric that, you know, people who seek out psychological support, what's happening to them? What well, it's a great point, isn't it? Because there's this view of those who are within that rubric, you know, those with a label of anxiety or depression or mental illness. People can be extremely stressed, overwrought, burning mm. out, anxious, down, but really not relate themselves to that which is labeled kind of in need of mental health um, assistance. People, I think, are having a real uh, wave-like response. Some weeks are good, some weeks are bad. I've certainly spoken to medical colleagues of mine who've been going through significant stress, pressure, distress. But it, it's interesting, I, without generalizing, I think men don't reach out as a habit. And so, as I was saying on q &A, it's important if you're someone who is doing okay and has the confidence and may have been at the epicenter of a social group to look around and think, who who haven't we heard from? Mm. Who's not the one who leads the charge down the pub? Mm. I was speaking to the Consul General of um, the Irish Consulate in Sydney, just around some support for the Irish community, because of course, we're relatively privileged as an immigrant group. We're, you know, predominantly white middle class with a similar cultural background. But I think thinking about other minority groups, other marginalized groups, immigrant mm. groups included, there's an extra level of potential disconnection and isolation. And I think we really need to tap into communities and ask, how can we support you supporting your group? It's amazing how we think all this information about the pandemic must pervade amongst everyone at this stage, but it really doesn't, mm. you know, I suppose, penetrate through to some cultural and marginalized groups. Can I just say, what, what's it like for you being away from home? You know, is it, what, what's your personal experience of missing Ireland and wondering about whether you should be back there and all that sort of stuff? Yeah, I mean, it's uh, tricky at times. I'm lucky to have great support here and a great life here, and so I'm aware of how lucky I am. But as someone who's used to being able to do what I want, it's, it's interesting to be told I simply cannot go. You know, I the benefit and pleasure of being able to go to Ireland every year. So I've missed my trip this year. And 
that that's new to be told no you simply can't and yeah thinking about family and friends there i'm in a lucky position they're all well and supported there too but it does bring into very acute mm. consciousness just how far we are away you know the this kind of gluttony of uh global flying we'd all done possibly wasn't sustainable and possibly isn't something we're going to be easily able to return to and it makes my position at the other side of the world feel very real do you know we've we, it's been about three weeks now that we've had the curfew and nobody's mentioned the curfew if you think about things you can't do and I, like yeah a lot of people can't go overseas but you think you can't go out past eight o'clock at night i mean and yet we've just accepted it as being that's what we have to do you know we've taken it on the chin and said yep that's what we have to do it's it's quite amazing i want to come say about us rob what does it say about us as a society so you know the yeah. americans if they got told oh. 8 p.m curfew there'd be a nuclear <laughs> explosion what does it say either of you what is but rob you start what does it say yeah. about us as a society that we've accepted it so easily i, I think Australians are pretty, as a rule, are pretty community-minded. There's a there's a strong, cohesive sense. I mean, you look around you and you'll see lots of different community groups. And even in health, we think in a very community-oriented way. You know, and there's community football teams and all those sorts of things. And, uh, you know, amongst uh, immigrant families, there's community there. Everybody's got community on mind. So I think that is a basis underpins a lot of our acceptance. What about you, Killian? What, what are your thoughts? It's interesting living here to see how right-wing the media bent can be. I think Australians maybe grow up in a culture where there's this really strong, powerful, prevalent right-wing media who delight in maybe highlighting the, the not-so-good. And so there's been a lot of talk about, you know, breaches of the, of the, of the curfew predominantly people just like like helping out and um i think it's testament as you said to community and the fact that people realize this is serious and want to mm. go away mm. just something i want to come back to killian and steve you know psychiatry for so long has been vested in a biological model you know the 90s to 2000s with the decade of the brain where we were offered the hope of discovering the biological basis of so many of the illnesses and disorders that that affect the people that that come to see us um but that didn't prove fruitful we couldn't isolate a lot of the molecules or receptors or whatever and i think what the pandemic has shown is that so much of what ails us is based in society or has societal root causes. This goes back to Durkheim, to throw a name around from the French uh, sociologist from the 1800s, that we've got to start thinking more about how, uh, as a community, how that affects the individual rather than the individual affecting the individual. There's, 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 a, there's a bigger sort of onion skin around that person, which I think the, the pandemic has really sh- uh, thrown into sharp relief. Absolutely. And remember that this new Australia is still very young in the grand scheme of humanity. And things have evolved to a point where there, there's a ruthlessness to, like in America, as you mentioned, there's a ruthlessness to some of the social structures. Perhaps it's taken a crisis of this magnitude to, you know, as you said, remind us to revisit Maslow's, you know, needs, priorities, needs. There's, there's a sense of, 
yes, people need mental health support, but also people need and deserve to be housed and to have income and have security of connection. And I think we need to revisit that hierarchy of needs. Yes, we need to make sure people have mental health support, but also not be drawn into a pharmacological approach to things. We can't medicate away the pain, the stress and anxiety that's generated by such an unprecedented event as this pandemic. Mm. I've just quickly Googled Maslow's hierarchy just so, because, you know, the reason I was, I, I, you might have noticed I had a little smile on my face because sometimes we have to translate from the Irish to the, because you said Maslow so fast, I don't think people would have picked up on it. But um, so, so I'm translating and I feel like an idiot can translating because probably everyone picked up. It was probably only me. So I, I, can I, can I try and guess the hierarchy of needs? Yeah, see if you can get it correct. Isn't it? I always, we all use this. This comes up just for the general listener. Isn't it, this comes up in mental health all the time. So, so where do you want to start at the, start the, top, at the bottom of the... the top, um, the top the, you want... No, um, you, you, the, you, by the top, you mean the bottom because it's a, it's a yeah, pyramid. Yeah, so the, the, the most important the core one. things, yeah, core things are at the bottom of the pyramid holding up the rest. Food, yep, go. shelter, water. Yep, physiological needs. Air, water, food, shelter, sleep, Air. clothing, reproduction. Yeah. Is reproduction one of the bio- the basic needs? Of yeah, basic physiological need, at least in the particular little triangle that I that first came up on Google. Yeah, <laughs> you better say the rest, otherwise you could be here for hours. With well, me. what's uh, the next level is safety needs, personal security, yeah. employment, resources, health, property. The next level up is love and belonging, friendship, oh, intimacy, that. family, sense of connection. The next level up is esteem, respect, self-esteem, status, recognition, strengths, freedom. And the top level is self-actualization, desire to become the most that one can be. And the point being that, you know, that it's, it's in the overall, of all these needs, the ones that, you know, the base, are the ones that you must have for everything else to be okay. And at the time of a pandemic, we're all worried about our physiological status and, you know, whether we're going to have enough food, the supermarket runs and all that sort of stuff. Um, and then, of course, our safety in particular, our health and whatnot. And then, you know, we work up that hierarchy and it so it throws us all. Something that challenges the bottom level throws us all. I think people might be surprised sometimes to think that as a, psychiatrist in a hyper-acute psychiatric unit, so much of my time is focused on how can we get this person somewhere stable to stay? Mm. How can we reconnect them to their family, to their community? How can we make sure that they've got the kind of support and income that can then allow them to stabilize their mental state? It's so important that we, I suppose, educate and, and develop mental health workers, including psychiatrists, that have a real focus on building from the bottom of that period, pyramid upwards. And that there isn't, we push back against the systemic demand that in a situation like this pandemic crisis says, psychiatrists, you fix this with your tablets. It's not the way. Pills don't put a roof over your head is uh, one of the sayings. Um, what about private practice, Killian? Have you noticed a difference in patient presentations to that or using telehealth has made a big difference? So there is a big change. I joined a practice that I like because they take a novel approach to ensuring equitable access to community-based care. So there are various different methods of doing that, including trying to tap into people's health funds to provide community work and keep people out of hospital if possible, you know, some bulk billing. So there's, there's a lot of different ways where they try to reach out to people. And telehealth, I mean, my point about telehealth is ideally 
face to face. You know, we always want to meet people. So much of a psychiatrist assessment is more than just the words that are said. There's so much that plays out in the room. Having said that, in a time of unprecedented crisis, it's essential that we have the access to people who need us. And the telehealth has provided that, and that needs to continue. People are traumatized. So I think that's the thing. No matter what mental health presentation they're coming with, whether it's a relapse of what they've had before, people are traumatized, they're drinking again, they're lonely, they're isolated. And the isolation bit mm. has just been so prominent in what I'm seeing. They have coped with so much in life, but this is the point that's brought them to seeing a psychiatrist. Mm. Yeah, it's really interesting, the isolation and how you deal with that. Hey, uh, we've got to wind up because we can't keep you all day, um, even though we'd love to just to listen to you. We're just happy to let you keep talking. We can listen to your <laughs> eyes, great to talk and to I, you guys. In my head, I'm dancing. As you talk, I'm sort of going, do 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 We have our final question. Normally, Rob asks it, but uh, see if I can get it right, Rob. Um, it's sort of our silver lining question. It goes along the lines of this. You know, what's something that you're doing now that – um, is different to before the pandemic that you want to continue on into the future? What's something good that, or something that's come from it that you want to continue? So therefore, I suppose it has to be something good because you want to continue it. You know, I think you referenced it earlier. Doctors and psychiatrists can be quite out there and I love to socialise and be out and about. Sometimes at the expense of maybe other wonderful aspects of life like that, exercising. My partner and I were... Uh, doing a Zoom PT session this morning. And if you you had told me a year ago I'd be doing Zoom PT, <laughs> would I have laughed? PT? But PT? I, personal training. PT, personal oh, training. I feel sorry. great. And it's good fun. And there's a lot of these kind of health things which the pandemic has forced upon me. Eating well, cooking. My God, it's a wonderful hobby. <laughs> All these new exciting aspects of feeling good that I um, had let slide as busy doctors do, and certainly value a lot now. Well, we've very much appreciated you taking the time to join us on Shrink the Virus this morning. It's a great treat, and it's, it's, it's uh, you know, it's a little, it's, you know, you really bring into sharp relief the importance of what's going on in the hospitals, and in particular for people with mental hair and mental health um, problems and receiving care. So it's great to hear, um, you know, in particular the positive messages you had about the staff and the great work everyone's doing in the in the big hospitals. So thanks very much, Killian, for joining us. Pleasure to talk to you both. Thanks for having me. That was Dr. Killian Ash uh, speaking to us here on Shrink the Virus. Steve, we were just saying, doesn't he put us to shame? And I loved hearing him on Q&A and he's just such a, you know, I really like people who seem balanced and can get everything together. Mm. No wonder he's working at a big hospital and doing so well in his career. Hey, we talk about the Radiothon though? We should talk about the Radiothon. Um, we we introed a bit of it at the start of the show, but I guess what we want to point out is how essential community radio is at this particular time. I mean, Triple R is really the backbone of community radio. I mean, there are other community radio stations, which are absolutely fantastic. But if you think about all the things that Triple R does, what do they do, Steve? What are, I mean, what does Triple R do? You well, you know, the thing with Triple R is it's independent radio. It's not playlisted. It's listener funded from the community. It's a not-for-profit organization. I mean, the sorts of words we love to throw around. It's inclusive. It's freeform. It's genuine, unpredictable. You know, the broadcasters have freedom. So they get on and they can decide what they're going to play. If their mood changes, they can press to play a different song. They can talk about a different topic. You can't get that in commercial radio. Commercial radio, half the time the, um, the DJs, the, the broadcasters, aren't even choosing 
all of that stuff. It's all just done in the background and they're just speaking for their little bit that's all pre-scripted and half the time written by comedians in, in the background anyway. Um, you know, and it's a hell of a lot of fun, Triple R. You know, it's um, it's got a really honest heart, I, I always find. You know, uh, and... I also find it incredibly informative, and I don't just mean information, yep. you know. That's where you, I, I really get the pulse of what's going on in the community through Triple R, mainly through On the Blower on uh, Friday morning. Um, you know, I listen to all the people calling in, you know, and also I love to hear all the new music. You know, I love, you know, it just it keeps me in touch with the culture I live in. I reckon probably nine out of ten of the artists or bands that I have been listening to over the last, I don't know, decade, two decades, have come from Triple R, especially Tim Thorpe's show, um, the vital bits on uh, Saturday and Sunday mornings. Stuff that I wouldn't hear on commercial stations or I wouldn't hear anywhere else, and now I've fallen totally in love with. I've just got to say one thing about Tim Thorpe, who's one of the presenters um, on Triple R. He's been there, I think, since Triple R was formed. In fact, I think he helped. I think he was there. He's been right, there that long. Right from Jesus. the start, yeah. I remember, I remember once I went in and I said, Tim... You know, I've been listening to, I've been watching this new TV show called The Sopranos, and there's this great song at the start. And he goes, okay, Rob. And I said, look, I don't know what it's called. Can you tell me? And he goes, hum it to me. So I go, and he goes, Alabama 3. <laughs> da, 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 da. And he knew the song <laughs> from me humming it. And I'm totally tone deaf. So that's the sort of people that work at Triple R. Oh, it is amazing. Yeah. Let me tell you just the basics. Um, you can subscribe or donate or both. Um, subscriptions, passionate 150, full 85, concession, strapped or under 18, 40 bucks. By the way, that's for the year, obviously. By the way, no one checks your concession. You can just declare your, if you haven't got much money, you can get a strapped one. You know, just say, hey, I'm cash strapped this year, mm. 40 bucks only. You st everyone gets exactly the same benefits, whether you pay the 150, mm. 85 or 40. It's exactly the same. No discrimination. Then they've got business 150, band musician 85, DJ producer audiophile, visual artist designer also 85. Um, it's pretty damn good value when you consider all the stuff that comes in with the gear. Do you know, do you know the thing that I like best? No, I'm, hand on my heart, I do this all the time. The thing I like best, the sticker. Because you put it, I put it on my bumper bar and you see other Triple R uh, drivers and you give them a bit of a wave and they look at me like, <laughs> get away from me. <laughs> but I go, Triple R, sticker. And sticker. the st sticker's quite different this year too. It's yeah. got the usual RRR bit, but it's, what does it have next? It's got, so, oh, I listen, I subscribe. And and don't forget all the discounts too. Movie tickets, music, yeah. gear, bikes, there's so many shops, art supplies, home, personal, professional services, pets, vets, health, food, drink, so many benefits. <laughs> what about the prizes, Roberto? Should uh, we mention any? We should mention I a kid few. you not, I, I I got the list out, the paper list out this year. Well, it's a PDF, so I didn't actually print it. But it's actually, and it's in normal font. It's not in big font, 17 pages. Of prizes. Year. The list of prizes goes for 17 pages. That's extraordinary. All sorts of, you know, there's the major prizes, one I, the, my, well, the I, DJ prizes. Sorry, what do you love? No, I, I love the um, downtown yoga and Pilates. I put Liberty that in class. especially for you. <laughs> you I highlighted really? that one. Thanks. Yeah, that's why that one's blown up. I blew that one up because I thought, because oh, I put the first, the, the three I put in, um, oh, yeah. just for us to mention, the La Mama Theatre always got, gets me. It's a, yeah. one of two double passes for every show at La Mama in the 2021 <laughs> season or when um, things resume. Yeah. You know, because I grew up in La Mama, you know, we, we mentioned in this podcast, my dad was an actor. So he, that La Mama was one of the really? little theatres that he started in when I was a kid. So I grew up, you know, sitting in the car park, hanging around inside. Um, that sort of stuff. So I've always got a soft spot for La Mama. And of course, I live right near Cinema Nova. So I love the fact that you can get a gold pass to Cinema Nova. How 12 months from the date of issue I just, of um, 
you know, double passes to any film. It's if I got over. that, I would just, I would live there. I'd just go yeah. there when it opened and I would leave yeah. when it closed. But in that 17 pages, there's all sorts of categories. Like there's DJ prizes, business prizes, pets, bands, d- daily prizes. You know, it's a different prize every day depending on when you subscribe. So how, um, how do you tell us? Because this year it's a bit different. We usually have a, like a telethon. People phone in. Yeah. It's going to be different. No this phone year, room. Yeah, no phone room this year, so it's just on the website, rrr.org.au. And when you see there, as I say, I I did mine this morning just to make sure I was up to date. I'll normally leave it to the last minute. Um, You know, there's two big buttons, subscribe or donate. And this year they're pushing donating a lot too, just Mm. because a lot of people want to get the tax deduction. Why wouldn't you Mm. when you're a bit cash-strapped? And that way you might be able to give a bit more. So you can go in. I just went into the subscribe button. You know, logged. I logged in. You can do it as a new person if you haven't logged in before. Um, And all your details come up if you've done it before. If not, it's incredibly easy name credit card bang off you go choose your level choose if you want to do anything else pick a show that you can subscribe to the whole station that now shrink the virus is not one of the choices so um choose radiotherapy if you would you know just so that give us a bit of love but you don't have to we don't care who you don't subscribe to. to makes no difference but if we just um, sort of subliminally plant in your mind radio therapy and <laughs> and you can write a message therapy. in the message right and therapy and i love shrink the virus Put that in your message. Um, (laughs) But it is really good. It is. I just can't, you know, I've got so much love for Triple R. You know what, too, Rob? I sort of got into Triple R. Look, I started listening when I was at uni. I was living in Fitzroy and I started listening, but I wasn't a passionate listener. I just flick it on occasionally for the music. I often listen in the morning. I love breakfast, as Mm, I still do. But one day, this is, you know this story, I'm sure. But one day, I'm listening on a Sunday morning and I hear your voice. And um, I got, you know, have I told you this? Um, no, and really? I'm listening and I'm thinking, because we'd lost track. You know, we'd yeah. been at school together and we'd sort of, you know, we'd Different stayed friends for the first two or three years yeah. of uni, one or two really. And then we drifted apart and um, we just lost track for no reason other than we were at different unis in different suburbs. And, uh, and I hear this voice and I'm thinking to myself, God, that sounds like Rob, <laughs> except, I've got to tell you, except... Rob was never that intelligent or sophisticated. <laughs> I honestly thought that. I thought, you're always smart, but you sounded sophisticated on radio. There's something sounded, about radio that makes you sound sophisticated. I know. It, it yeah. sort of raises – it's sort of like when you're listening to it, you 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 project onto the person talking a greater degree of intelligence because yeah. they're on the yeah. radio than yeah. you would if you're in the room with them. And I kept thinking, no, it can't be Rob. No, it can't be. And then I listened the next week and I thought – it sounds like it. Nah, it can't be. It probably it can't wasn't. Be. No, it was. And then I started asking. I said, you know, I asked a couple of our mutual friends. Said, does anyone know if Rob's on the radio? Because, because you, of course, you were called Doctor Malpractice. Oh, that's right. Yeah. So you weren't. So it was no way of knowing from your name. Yeah. And so I'm asking, does anyone know if Doctor Malpractice is actually Rob Seltzer? And people say, oh, I don't. I don't think so. And someone else listened. And said, it sounds like Rob, but nah, nah, way too sophisticated. <laughs> You know, that's um, that reminds and me. And then I, but no, by good. the way, and yeah. I got onto radiotherapy because you invited me on about you know, so we came together again at the Alfred Hospital many years later, mm. and then you know, about well, you were my day, boss, yeah, yeah, you, yeah, yeah things, I turned yeah. and then turned out, I'd uh, I'd sped up a little, you'd done a few extra things and taken a few sidetracks, and so I was your boss. God, I love being, I hope I get to be your boss again one day, you know, one day the table should so turn. One day, hey, but you know, on another show, I'll talk about how I called, and I'll talk about how I called once looking for a a glass merchant, and I missed. We've got such different versions of this story, but anyway, you go on. And I misdialed the number, and um, I thought I was calling the glass merchants, and this person at the end of the phone says, "Ward three A, Steve Allen." I said, "Steve, I 
are you are you dealing in glass at the moment, mate? Because <laughs> and why is it a wart? And I had what's the word? Coincidentally, um, randomly called you, who somebody I hadn't spoken to for about fifteen years, on a ward, not knowing it's misdialing yeah. a number. Yeah, it's a misdial. Um, except the my only difference is mm-hmm. um, it wasn't three A. No, my my only difference is that I believe I called you and I believed I was calling a ward at the Austin Hospital. It was 1980, it was 1990. 90-something, yeah. Yeah, it was 1990. It was March 1990. I know because I know the rotation. I know. And you might be right. I don't know which of us styled which, but either way, yeah, it was just like, what? What? Because I thought I was ringing one of the wards at the Austin, I thought. But you might have remembered it right or right. Who knows? Um, One of us has misremembered it, but the gist of it is correct. It's out of the blue a wrong number, and we got on the phone to each other, and we had a great gas bag because we never separated because we had had an argument or anything. Up. It wasn't. We literally divorce. just, no. you know, just drifted apart because you're at Monash and I was at Melbourne, and obviously because I was at Melbourne, I was smarter and stuff like that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not biting, Steve. I'm not biting. No. Hey, man, we should, should you? We should, should um, you. People probably aren't terribly Finish interested. In, in, in They're probably not history. listening now. No. Anyway. <laughs> so, so, okay, we might as well just sign off. Just In fact, we should just keep talking. Hey, um, we've got to say thank you to everybody, don't we? Shall I say thank you? Thank you. Yeah, you did. Thank you. To everybody at Triple R, um, especially Beck, Mia, Grace, Elizabeth, and Michael, who just makes us sound so much better than we really are. Thank you so much, Michael. And also thank you to Killian Ash for coming on the show this week. And we shall see you all again next week. Don't forget, you can look at all that social media stuff. We've told you what it all is before. Um, but uh, thanks for listening, everyone. Ciao. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform.